This podcast is brought to you by Zwift, the app for cyclists, runners and triathletes. Zwift blends the fun of video games with the intensity of serious training, helping you get faster. Level up in the virtual worlds of Zwift with a community that motivates you every minute. Whether you are up for a group ride, a race or training, you get fitter and stronger. So head over to Zwift.com and discover the world of Zwift today. Wasn't it Joop that said, the bike to bike, that's all I like? Well, not for us. We cover life on and off the bike. This is Coasting, the Live Slow, Ride Fast podcast. When in the mood starts swinging, the devil's grinning, he keeps on singing. Hearts get heavy and time's an enemy. Today, we continue a series of podcasts in which we dive into the world of gravel adventure riding. And the search continues. Today, our guest is Nathan Haas. World Tour Pro turned adventurer. We talk roadie life, gravel life. Well, heck, we talk life in general. So join us for another episode of Coasting, powered by Shimano GRX and Specialized, straight from the sometimes a bit noisy, sorry for that, but overall vibing Unbound Gravel Expo at downtown Emporia. My name is Stephen Bolt, and sitting right in front of me, the one and only Thomas Decker. From a deep blue down to a golden day, that's a rocky road and a mighty long way. Riding the road Thomas. Yeah, hello. You're not, you're not loud. What's uh, happening? Shall we do it in Dutch? <laughs> yeah. Hey, if you're not Dutch, you're not much. <laughs> I was really, I was confused, yeah. to be honest. I never did a podcast uh, with you in, uh, no, in it's English. A, it's our first, it's our first pod- podcast together. Th- that has a reason. Yeah. But first. Shall we announce well, well, no. the retirement of Tom Dumoulin? <laughs> Uh, but also Lawrence Tendam retired from the Live Slow Ride Fast podcast. <laughs> we have a new Lau. Um, where are we? Describe we, where we are. We are in uh, Emporia. And Emporia is tomorrow. Uh, we are going to ride the most important, prestigious gravel race in the world. Uh, it all started maybe over here. I don't know. I'm not sure. But uh, it's an important one. I think the most of the strong gravel riders uh, are here. And uh, that's why uh, I saw Nathan. Nathan, uh, I saw for the first time also in the States, in Colorado, November 2011. I was not sure for a contract. And I always remember that first bike ride. He was a mountain bike rider. And he got a Cervelo. We had a Cervelo bike at the time. And you know the thing that I remembered? That he was riding with shorts. And it was really cold in Boulder. And he didn't bring any leg warmers. And uh, that's now, yeah, uh, more than 10 years ago. And, uh, yeah, we just had a quick breakfast together. And lots of things happened in between. You're going fast, man. Yeah. So we are at... Oh, yeah. At, in we, Emporia. We were talking about the where day, we were. The day before, <laughs> the day before Unbound. <laughs> I'm so excited. It's a, dude, it's a difficult job. Yeah. But I'm going to pull you through. So much respect for Lawrence. We are in Emporia. It's the day before the race, for the Unbound race. Yeah. And sitting on the other side of the table is Nathan. Yeah. Nathan Haas. Welcome to the podcast, man. I already did a quick introduction. Yeah. Thank you, Thomas. Yeah. I'm so excited. I, I have to say, there's, there's a lot of podcasts that... Uh, I get to do a lot of talking on, but I, th- I think this is going to be the one that I have to like fight to get my words in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's. I no, don't worry, don't worry. Yeah, that's that's with with Lau sitting on the other side of the table. That's the that's the case, but also with uh, with uh, with uh, with Thomas. Um, why are you here and and not Lau? 
Um, because uh, I explained earlier, I have a long <laughs> connection with Nathan. We go way back and um, we were in the same team. Um, I stayed even at his mom's place in Canberra, Australia. And uh, Nathan uh, retired last year and now uh, we meet again in the gravel scene. Ready to race tomorrow? I definitely hope that's the case. I don't think I've ever done anything this long in time or kilometers. Like it's, uh, it's to be honest, it's a whole new kettle of fish for me. And uh, there's a little bit of nerves just around, you know, what that's going to mean. But at the same time, um, yeah, I've been training. I've been loving life. And, uh, you know, the, the kind of reality of the situation here is it's... Uh, This is like a fact-finding mission for me as much as it is something that I'm actually shooting towards. You know, it's the, it's the biggest gravel race in the world, um, but it's also not the only one. So for me, I'm, I'm going in with like a super open mind, a really open heart, and, uh, you know, the outcome as it is with all bike racing is actually just going to be what it's going to be. And, um, you know, I think Thomas knows more than anyone is that motivation and good energy is what you need more than to be necessarily 100% prepared. Yeah, and the good thing is when I'm looking at your face, I, uh, in the background I see the sandstone brick walls of the Emporia Church, which makes this actually like the Capel Muir, <laughs> the Capel Muir of, uh, of Emporia. This is like holy ground, sacred ground, how do you say that? Yeah, if we ground this church <laughs> down to a fine pulp, it would make a really nice gravel bed. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. this is, um, for the moment we'll keep it as a church because it's a holy place, but um, as soon as we need a bit more gravel, we'll Just uh, knock it down, grind it away, and uh, there we go. Thomas, what was the what was the what was the first impression? What, do you remember when you first saw Nathan? Yeah, I did. I do. So that was in in Boulder in in that winter of 2011 towards 2012. I was not sure for my contract. I still had to prove myself. So for me, it was a really difficult situation. And this kid uh, came over uh, from Australia. He had some uh, mountain bike experience and then he rode for a small Australian team on the road and he had some really nice results, but not in Europe. Like uh, he, uh, he did them uh, on a different continent and JV gave him the chance to be a professional bike rider at the world tour level. And uh, yeah, what I was just saying in the beginning when I was too excited probably, um, I remember his shorts, but I also remember when we had that bike ride uh, that I was uh, telling him a little bit of my story. I was just suspended for more than two and a half years and Nathan didn't know who I was. So that was for me also uh, a nice experience in a way because everybody was always so opinionated about us, uh, about me. And especially if you're in the middle of something You come out of your darkest moment and you get back and you see some light in the end of the tunnel. Uh, and then to have just a fresh Australian kid who is excited for almost everything. The new bike, the clothes. Yeah, they gave uh, me leg warmers. Yeah, they, gave, they gave me leg warmers. <laughs> you did have one. And um, so, uh, yeah, later on, uh, the time uh, was passing through. Uh, he, uh, we became close and we became friends. And... He's not your typical cyclist, uh, you know. He also thinks a lot about life in a, in a, in, in a way, and um, yeah, we had some nice times. We had some times that we didn't like the bike at all, and it was not always the best atmosphere to get the best out of an athlete. I think in those circumstances at the time, and uh, I was always saying to him, you know, like because he had sometimes the legs. He was really strong. I said, like, one day you're going to win the Amstel Gold Race. 
Uh, Which, by the way, just some 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 facts, uh, some just yeah. just for people who who don't really know uh, Nathan Haas or don't have the results. Uh, uh, Japan Cup, Tour of Britain, Harold Sun Tour, fourth in Amstel Gold. Yeah, so I came close. Yeah, fourth in Amstel Gold, man. That's holy shit. Nice. I only made it to the fifth place. <laughs> That's one of the only yeah. results I've actually got better than Pastecco. Look at that. <laughs> and you guys met, so that's uh, 2012, Garmin Sharp. That's yeah, what that was the first to, year. Right? Yeah. Yeah. You really didn't know him? So look, here's the real thing. My, my only connection I had to road cycling was during the Tour de France, I had a few friends in Australia that we used to stay up and we made drinking games around the Tour de France. So like if there was a time trial, yeah. if someone set the new fastest time, you had to drink. If someone said Lance, you had to drink. <laughs> if someone crashed, you had to drink twice. And then everyone kind of got to like pick a rider uh, for another guy. So like you picked a rider for a friend on a road stage. So if they spoke about Lance, my friend Angus had to drink. And you know, if they spoke about Ulrich, I had to drink. So really cycling to me was something that... Um, was this cool thing to watch. I always really like appreciated the beauty and the physicality, but I was a mountain biker. And like, I remember when I was mountain biking, I saw some wet concrete once and I actually wrote into the concrete MTB for life, you know, with the number four. And so I was a pretty staunch, like off-roader at that point. And, um, I kind of found myself and, and, and I do mean this, like, I think cycling found me and everything came together almost too easily for me to even realize what was going on. You know, I won the Japan cup. I won the sun tour, in this one year that I won literally every national road series race in Australia, I had you know multiple world tour teams offering me a contract, and it was like all of a sudden my whole life was flipped on its head. Yeah. So when, when it was never you, the, it was never the plan. Honestly, no. Holy shit! It was it was like something. It was a cool concept, but yeah. it was never it was never the like I'm a 12 year old kid and I want to be a pro cyclist. But you were a mountain biker. How did you end up at, at your first road race then? Uh, so like my local cycling academy said, hey we have a road bike and our team needs an extra rider for this national right. race. Do you want to come? And I thought to myself, well, dude, I'm not a roadie. And, and I went with full finger mountain bike gloves. And I still have a photo off the front with Rowan Dennis at a kilometer to go. We, we soloed away. <laughs> and uh, there's this like dorky photo, this mountain bike. I was using SPD cleats. I didn't even have road cleats. So it was just like... Uh, Did you beat him in a sprint? Um, no. No. <laughs> no. Because I, I did that thing where I thought, you know you go all the way to the line yeah. <laughs> and then ah oh, damn tactics matter but um you learn fast with road but uh you know when we talk about like you know fitting into the box of cycling um truth was when i turned up to my first camp i didn't even know what the box looked like so thomas to me was this like really interesting new experience in itself right and I was also going to a team where there were a lot of guys that were ex-dopers. I knew what the team was about. I yeah. knew what it stood for. It was yeah. actually about being honest, about changing the narrative, about Second basically chances. saying like, you know, why should we punish the guys that got caught but still high-five all the guys that didn't get caught that are the directors and yeah. still writing? It's like, it's like that's, that's some bullshit yeah. right yeah. there. And it still goes on today, right? And it's like, to yeah. me, it's still something that actually pains me about cycling is, you know, I don't want to say the Belgian cyclist... Uh, that I'm thinking of, but everyone celebrates this one guy who went positive multiple times. Yeah. And he's this, you know, voice and reason on all the yeah. sorts of things in cycling. And it's just to me, there's this bullshit that goes on. Yeah. But in saying that, like, I'm sitting next to Thomas on a ride and he's sort of telling me his life story. And I'm sitting there going, like, holy shit. Fuck, that's really like, that's a lot of life. And you're not that old yet, you know, like, yeah. you're not that many years older than me. And I've just been at university partying, you know. <laughs> 
trying to have as much fun as I can and riding bikes. And now I'm here and it's kind of flipping me out. But So you guys but, got along. Yeah, but I think there were sort of two things. Like I I really picked up on Thomas's like honesty and, and human side because that's all I'd been around for the entirety of my life. I hadn't been around this like really, you know, insulated sports world where people are driven by their egos shaped by who they want to be or trying to talk about results or justify who they are by doing things it's like no 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 I was around people that you judge them for who they were and for the situation that you were in and their values and how they acted and I was just speaking to this super honest guy and I was surprised what by did how he do honest. what did he say what, 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 what do you mean being honest is it like you know it, it, to be honest it's too long ago for me to tell you yeah. like the specifics of yeah. the conversation but all I remember was walking away it was like that guy didn't hold anything yeah. back and any question I asked I got a very wholesome answer it's right? pretty open yeah um, but on the other side of that conversation I think Thomas also saw that I didn't fit in a box because like I said I didn't even know what the box looked like so there were a lot of times um, where I did things in races that either pissed off directors, challenged the preconceived notion of what you have to do to other riders, pissed off other riders, and Thomas protected me in the sense that he sometimes diffused situations, but also came to me and told me afterwards, Nathan, I get that these kind of like cycling things are stupid, but if you want to keep your head like under the table, this is how to do it. Or... You know, Thomas would see that, um, you know, a teammate, you know, Robbie Hunter tried to fight me once at the yeah. Giro d'Italia, which, to be honest, when I think back on that, that was one of the most bullshit situations I've ever been yeah. in in my life. And What was what's the situation? Um, actually, I, I'll, I'll tell it. Cause yeah, yeah. I it doesn't, doesn't matter. I don't actually get <laughs> it's fine anymore. Like, if he comes to punch me now, then then uh, then it's assault. <laughs> no, but he, you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> here. I, think, I think Robert Hunter also knows who he is. Yeah, and yeah. he also knows that he made mistakes. And if you think you have now, if you would have a decent conversation with him, you know, 100%. like it's it's fine, you know, like. And you know, I also don't. Situation. I also don't hold it against him. Um, I have a lot of respect, and there's still friendship with Robbie Hunter. Um, but uh, it's also to say that we'll come back to this yeah. point maybe yeah. afterwards. Is that cycling is like a pressure cooker of life. It's like you, you get a lot of life in one day, and some experiences in cycling, right? And and emotions and. Uh, feelings and situations can kind of go from two out of ten to like fifty out of ten, just like that. So you know, I, I also give people a lot of credence and a lot yeah. of breath to say situations are what they are. And I also, I also acted poorly in different situations. Mm. But anyway, we were stage sixteen of the Giro d'Italia. We were standing on top of I forget which mountain it was. Um, there was snow everywhere. I had a pretty bad saddle sore at the time, so it was like something I was nursing through my first Grand Tour, and. Uh, I finished with the Gruppetto with Robbie Hunter. He got into the camper that we had to go down to the bus like super fast. He sort of just like put a towel around him, started eating food. And I went to my rain bag to put on some new nicks because I didn't want to be sitting in this like dirty, yucky chamois while I had basically like a bleeding sore because yeah. I don't want to get infected because you cannot finish a race from that. And then Robbie's yelling at me, Nathan, hurry up, hurry up. And I'm like, yeah, man, I'm going as fast as I can. And... Uh, And then, you know, I'm putting on quickly some leg warmers, some shoes, and then I went to get my food, and he's just really starting to yell at me. You know, everyone else has gotten into the car, but, like, I really had, like, a situation I had to deal with. Um, you know, maybe it was my fault for not explaining that, but I don't think he would have cared anyway because he just wanted to get off the hill. And uh, next thing I get into the car, and he's, you know, sort of saying, like, you know, why did you fucking take so long? And I said, 
Robbie, can you please just not talk to me right now? Like, I'm emotionally, I'm not able to handle that. And then he'd sort of got up into my face, you know, screaming at me, like, you know, why would you disgrace me in front of my teammates? Will you disrespect me like this, speaking to me in a way like this? And then it was really like he was trying to punch me. And I, I basically said to him, I was like, just hit me, Robbie. I now don't care. Just hit me. Like, go for it. And it was sort of this, like, horrible situation. And was it your first Grand Tour? Yeah, it yeah. was. And, I mean, no one can understand the dark hole that you get into that late into a third week on a mountaintop finish where you've done four and a half thousand meters climbing. You're just dead. And then you've got a, the team, the thing that you actually think has got your back and protecting you the most, um, screaming at wow. you and actually threatening to assault you. And at this point, I actually thought, just punch me. I'll get out and go home. Yeah. You know, like, you know, yeah. fuck you. I don't want to be here yeah. anymore. You've, you've kind of ruined my soup, yeah. you know? So this story... To put it more on, the, uh, this story illustrates just that side of of, of, of cycling, yeah, of pro and, cycling, and it can go that way, right? And and again, yeah. like I don't judge Robbie for no, the situation because no, no, no. it just was what it was. Yeah, yeah. I in any other professional like industry, yeah. you'd be going to HR and he'd be getting probably exactly. not getting yeah. paid for a while. Yeah. But not you know, cycling. pro sport is a bit yeah. different. Not saying that's excusable, but it is a bit different. Yeah. Um, but anyway, Thomas then down the hill, like the whole car was full of beta males that don't know how to sort of like stick up for somebody um, and that also kind of disappointed me in the sense that like everyone else was like no, you felt just alone. sitting there like oh yeah. shit Nathan's about to get punched as opposed to like hey yeah. you know like if I saw a young guy getting yelled at by another rider I would be telling the older guy dude you stop right now we talk about this later like no. you never threaten a, a teammate we're a team right yeah. especially if, if not you're doing when that when you're not down a and team out. right yeah. yeah it's like you got the, you got to have each other's backs in the worst moments and then Thomas, the complete opposite. Robbie, you need to stop right now. We can we can sort this out later. And it was this exactly that thing that I was hoping someone would do. And Thomas is, I say this lovingly, a bit more of an effeminate male. You know, he's not he's never portrayed himself to be this muscular alpha male that can defuse a fight. But no, he just has morals, he has values and It's funny, you know, the guy who kind of told me the stories about breaking all the morals and values early on in his career actually turned out to be the most upstanding guy I probably yeah. met in the peloton. Yeah. And then, you know, down the down this mountain, Thomas is actually trying to make all these jokes. Like we saw this film crew that had turned their attention to Thomas because David Miller had this film crew at the race with him. Miller went home. Yeah. So then all of a sudden, Thomas was like, hey guys, there's my crew. And then, <laughs> and then we're all just actually laughing at this point. You know, deep down, I was still like butt hurt. Um, yeah. And then, you know, we're coming into the room and Tom just comes and gives me a big hug and he says, what happened to you in the car was not right. That was not just. And it's not your fault. You did nothing wrong. And it was just the words that I needed to hear as a young rider. And I don't necessarily think it was because it was me. I think Thomas would have done that to any rider in that situation. So for me, for me, kind of, I think our relationship has been quite unique because we've always seen things on a human level as opposed to just this like cutthroat sporting level. And also, we kind of don't care if people are cool or not. We just judge them based on how you can relate to each other. And you yeah. know, if someone turns up in some sick clothes, Thomas doesn't give a shit. And also when Thomas had nice things, he didn't give a shit about them either. Like, do you remember when Jacob Rath at Nokrakos had that massive crash? Mm. He stripped the side of his leg. He was absolutely debarked. And he didn't have long pants to go home in because he just traveled with shorts for some weird reason. Thomas had these Prada tracksuit pants and you gave them to him and the whole flight home he's bleeding through these tracksuit pants they're completely dead 
And then Jacob's like, oh, I'll just buy him some new ones. And I had to break it to him. I said, to be honest, they're about a thousand euros, right? Like, I'm sorry. And then he, he was like freaking out. And then we messaged Thomas. And I'm like, dude, what do we do about these pants? We're trying to clean them. And you went, I don't care about the pants. I gave them to you to protect your leg. And it's just like, oh. it's a different level of human here. And that's why we've always been good friends. Cause nice. He's just yeah. awesome. Okay. Now enough. Yeah. I'm Thomas Decker. Uh, what do you think? When you, what do you feel? What do you, what do you think about when you see the guy talking about the early days? Yeah, it sounds uh, long ago for me. You know, I've been yeah. so to so diff. Yeah, but sometimes it's not even your early days. No, no, no. But sometimes I just forget that I was just like a professional cyclist before. You know, like and I can remember now the story of Robert Hunter. What uh, kind of what, what did you? What's your not, not your version of the story? But what what guy was he then, Nathan? Was he the uh, young I remember, kid you, you know, I remember he was really, he was really like, he was a st really strong rider and he was ambitious. Um, and clearly he didn't fit in the old school cycling box. Um, a guy like, for example, Robert Hunter is also an old Rabobank rider, a guy from South Africa, race different, uh, big passion for cycling, absolute killer as a teammate sometimes in the race. You know, like you don't mess with Robbie. No. Um, But I see Nathan. <laughs> that's, that's that's something. <laughs> There was a guy while 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 um, Dire Straits is playing uh, Walk of Life in the in, in the background. In the background, there's a guy with a with a, with a what? Uh, what? 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 What is it's he? like uh, a mannequin, <laughs> yeah, man. a ma like an elastic mannequin walking upside down in what looks like a bear costume. <laughs> was a bit things weird. are going things are going Crazy. down here in Emporia. Back to you, Thomas. So, um, but I think already, like, because I stopped in the end of 2014, and you know, like with everything, everyone is busy with their own life, and um, probably how he came into cycling, he also got out of cycling. Um, You know, it went pretty fast. He's still young. He's oh. retired. His last few years with Kofidis, a French team. Yeah, you know, I probably could tell him before that it uh, would be not the team that would make him the most happy person of the best ver version of him. But you always try things. You know, you want to hold on. Especially also when I retired, I was aiming for that small team still, not having a contract, no money. Please take me. I want to do this one year more because I didn't know what to do afterwards. Um, so I think he got really good out of cycling because like Nathan uh, is a guy who is smart and uh, can reinvent himself. He has the love for the bikes that he already had in the beginning. But I think his career uh, was also in his way like a roller coaster of emotions like everyone. Everyone has his own story. You come in fresh, on, you, you don't know things, you learn a lot of things on the road, and then maybe in the end of the career of your career you realize, if I look by, back and I'm honest to myself, it's maybe not the world for me. Yeah. In that way, you know, like he loves riding bikes, but being a professional on a certain level and to fit in that box, because if you fit in that box, you make it yourself easy. But if it takes a lot of work to fit in that box, you know, it's, it's a struggle. And yeah. uh, he came out and he chose to do, and like now he has his own podcast. He, he is a father of a beautiful girl. Um, he's a way more happy person than he was before. But, you know, it took that professional career to realize that that's not your only yeah. happiness. Yeah. Because before, 
you turn pro and you want to be pro for 15 years and it doesn't matter what you feel in that 15 years. You just want to be a professional. Every year you have the best results, you get a new contract and you move on. Yeah. But if you think about it, about life a lot, and I do, and, I, and Nathan also uh, does, you can maintain that for 15 years to fool yourself. You can fool yourself a little bit. So he, he took the benefits of being a professional for the rest of his life. He had some nice results. He has a nice life over over uh, at, at this uh, like where, where he is now, and I think that's the most important. Just uh, for the for the listener, uh, you turned like uh, how do you what's your profession now? Gravel rider, privateer? Is that is that how um, to how to put it? You no, know, I actually don't feel like I have a profession no? now. Um, I don't think there's actually a professional gravel rider at this point. Um, I don't like the word privateer. I think it's. Um, I think it's also trying to create a box again, right? Uh, it's just like I, I just do lots of things. I'm a full-time student. I'm a dad. I'm a husband. I'm a friend. I'm a son. I, you know, I write for Cycling News. I have my podcast. You know, I, I love making film. I love working on photography projects. It's like putting, putting anything I do into like, you know, one thing kind of again. It's a human condition as we always try to categorize things. And I think the kind of essence of where we are right now is that it's kind of uncategorical, um, which is nice. And that's where I see myself. So I, I don't say I, I'm anything right now. I'm, one thing that I always got frustrated by in cycling um, was every time we go up to the podium for team presentation is they go three times Tour de France winner, Chris Froome. And you go, hang on, four times. And you go, sorry, Thomas, just try and have an example. And it was before the fourth. And one of the things that I always hated was they would say, you know, Harold Sutton winner, it's more than Tour of Britain winner, blah, blah, blah winner, Nathan Haas. And it's like, hang on a second. Why did the results precede the name? There's something really wrong about that. Because guess what? Who I am is not those results. Those results are a part of my experience and a part of the things I've done and part of my story. They're a part of my history, but they are not who I am. And I don't like that. So I think, um, you know, to, to put things into a box or a name, even with gravel, is kind of like just not where I want to be. But, you know, to kind of go back to what Thomas was saying a little bit before and saying that, you know, if you live that long, basically trying to act like you fit into a thing, you're, you're not at ease. And when you're not at ease with yourself, you're actually in dis-ease. And disease... And that can manifest into all kinds of things. That can manifest into depression, depression, anxiety, can even turn into physical illnesses and disease. So for the most part, when I decided to make this change in my life, it was honestly this feeling like I got rid of an injury. And I know that sounds really strange because I loved what I did. And a huge, it is a huge part of who I am, a huge part of my history, my experiences, uh, so it's not like I would want to go back and not be a pro cyclist. It's just I can't be that anymore. I can't put on the act. And it was the same thing with Marcel Kittle. He's actually a big soft teddy bear, but he had to put on a warrior suit every time he hopped onto a bike. And at a certain point in his hero's journey, he had to put the sword down. He, he was tired of playing that avatar. He couldn't do that anymore because he was in disease, Yeah, in my opinion. And I was starting to get there, but I think I fortunately had enough foresight to say, I want to make the change before I become actually sick off this and sick because of this. And 
my uh, my relationship with the bike is it's growing more and more and more in its own way. Um, and for me, it's just like a vehicle for life experiences. I think it's just for me, it's just a kick-ass thing to be meeting and talking all around the world and enjoying things and places and reconnecting with nature, which to me is a huge part of our like essence. But are you in ease now? And in ease now, yeah. I, you know, I don't think humans are supposed to be in total ease. You know, I think we need stress to make us stronger. We train to stress the body so it reacts to become stronger. And I'm a firm believer that you have to break an egg to make an omelet. Um, so I'm not looking to be in total ease. But when I wake up, I'm feeling as if my life is where it's supposed to be. And when I meditate, it feels definitely to me that, you know, when I use the mantra of you have nothing else to do, you're doing it right now, it feels true. You know, and, and I feel as if my schedules are flexible because I'm not trying to force things into my day or my life. They happen because they're supposed to. So in, in a way, I feel like I'm on a good path right now. But um, for sure as well, this isn't where I'm supposed to be in 10 years. It's where I'm supposed to be right now. And I have to break some more eggs to get to 10 years. Can I ask you a question? You are like back at university and you're studying. And if probably in a few years you get your degree. Um, do you want to do something specific with that study? Do you want to be around young athletes? Do you want to help people in life? Well, what's, your, what's your goal uh, with that? Good question. Um, and I actually do have... An, I, I try not to have too many yes answers to things. Yeah. But this one, I definitely do have a yes answer to. My, my time in cycling has taught me... Um, one thing is that athletes are a very selfish personality and again that wasn't an ease for me to be selfish to change social scenarios because of my needs to demand things of people that work for me um, when I could have done it myself but the the more professional thing at the time was to be selfish um, that didn't feel easy for me uh, so my my true hearts always wanted to do something that serves people after cycling um, and to actually give back because I think there's the yin and the yang there's a, there's a point where you can be yin and there's also a point where you have to be yang and um, second to that I've had a lot of sort of strange issues um, injury and medical through my career that traditional medicine has not been able to do anything about you know countless scans countless different types of pills and medications for whatever did nothing but then when I saw osteopaths we actually managed to break down the problem at a core level and actually treat them from their inception point not just treat the symptoms but actually fix things and uh, one of the interesting things about uh, conditions like depression or self-confidence or anxiety they can manifest actually from chronic pain absolutely and I've been in periods where I've had chronic pain and my sense of self has been in the gutter um, even though I know I don't have anything that's actually affecting me The pain drives the problem. And um, I've been wanting to devote my second part of my career life to becoming an osteopath. And that's why I'm studying um, you know, the Bachelor of Health Science to move into a Master's of Osteopathy so that I can spend the next part of my life helping to treat people um, in ways in which I think the you know, evidence-based medicine... Yeah can fail them um, it's not to say that evidence-based medicine is bad because you know if you've, yeah. if you've broken your leg you go to see a, a hospital you don't go yeah. to see an osteo right and if you have cancer you don't go to see a homeopathist you know you, you go to a real doctor however when it's trying to cross the t's and dot the i's 
um, that's where you start to see um, alternative treatments. And I think um, I'm, st I'm starting to become an osteo. Um, the philosophy of A.T. Still, the forefather of osteopathy as well, is his underlying philosophy is that it's not something that just the rich and the famous get to have access to. Everyone should have access to treatment. So when you ask me, do I want to be with young athletes? Yeah, I do want Sometimes to... Sometimes probably. Sometimes, yes. And I want to have a connection to sport um, because I still relate to it very well and I have a good understanding, especially in cycling, about what injuries can need and what they can't need. Um, and doing the right treatment at the right time, right? Like you don't yeah. want to like crack someone's back too hard the day before a race because it'll send them into like a sleepy cycle. Yeah. Um, but I also want to make sure that I'm treating yeah. real people and helping real people with real problems. And that's what I want to devote the sort of latter part of my life to is exploring that journey. Your service to the world. Yeah. yeah. Time to give back. Yeah, yeah, that was my thing when I was uh, working, when I was living in LA with two healers. I found a few things for me, passion, love, and my service to the world. And in yeah, you do you you do, studying something specific. You know you're going to do this, and uh, mm. yeah, I try to still figure out what my service is. But I think it's good already we talk about it. You know that you have a clear point of view and a starting point. It's that that sounds really nice to me because you know like you stop being a cyclist and what are you going to do next? And that you found so fast something. Yeah, uh, where you can put all your energy energy to. That's really nice to hear. But that's been going whilst I have been a cyclist because I also got to a point where I was like, I'm wasting so many hours in a day and I feel like my brain is turning to mush sitting here. Like when, when your job, when you finish training is to literally do nothing, you sort of ask yourself like, what is our, what is our weird little place in the world? Like this is a really yeah. strange thing. And, and I actually find that exercising the brain has all these neuroconnectivity positive outcomes in the body when I use my brain my body feels better yeah. when I'm using my brain I recover faster when I use my brain I feel fresher I feel did, lighter did you ever read a book about from Joey Dispenza the guy I've heard of it yeah heard you of really have to do because this guy is all about that you can heal yourself because like with all the negative thoughts and the positive thoughts like the neuroscience has proven that you really create those problems but you can also solve them by being more positive or uh, like being um, really aware mm -hmm. what you're thinking because it's all inside of you, you know? Well, and that's especially with cancer. I believe that it, it's, it's been caused by a lot of stress, negative like thoughts, environment, yeah. uh, background, and stuff like that. And uh, there's something completely different with what you were saying, well, but I really believe that. But you know when we look at how our body works and our brain, it's... It, we're a series of electrical currents we are just a big circuit network and if you always go into a negative thought spiral that's going to be the most common line yeah. that that electricity flows through and but you can actually retrain yeah. and those electrical currents to think positively and at the start you have to do it yourself yeah. but after a while that becomes the line of best fit the, the line of least resistance becomes positivity yeah. and, and, and I truly think that you can heal yourself yeah. in many ways and that also comes through with recovering as a cyclist and I felt like my last years of my career um, that it was such an easy habit to be negative about bike racing of course I tried to always be positive in the bus and have fun with each other but like physical wise and performance wise I was so negative 
that it could be it was impossible to to reach that level from when I was younger, and that was only because of my thoughts, because my body was exactly the same. Yeah, it's you know it's like when your computer has too many programs running in the background. Yeah, there's no RAM left. Yeah, and uh, I think you know you you can actually draw a lot of comparisons to to computers. You know to how psychology works I think as an athlete anyway um, you know I don't want to oversimplify yeah. things or or speak um, out of my expertise field but um, I've, I've certainly found that at least you know n plus one in this case scenario here I've, I've definitely found that the, the more I'm learning the more I'm thinking the healthier I am yeah. and uh, you know I think it's it's an important thing for cyclists uh, in many ways to open their mind but you know I've heard this expression so many times and I love it it's you don't have to be stupid to be a good cyclist but it really helps yeah ignorance you know, is bliss ignorance is bliss we have had uh, quite a few uh, cyclists on the podcast that come from being a roadie pro and are telling about uh, for also uh, for instance uh, Lawrence but also Pete and Ian they say since I've been doing a lot of stuff I love to do next to cycling one, my days become way more busy and I'm switched on all day instead of training and laying in my bed and eating and sleeping and training. I've been a lot busier, but performance-wise, I feel stronger. Do you have the same thing? Yeah, I, I think pro cycling takes you away from being a human. Yeah. And we're a human first and then we're a bike racer. You know, we have to always look at things in terms of the like the list of priority and list of situation. And um, I've definitely found that, you know, and, and also throw in having a kid in there, right? Like I've got yeah. limited time to do yeah. the things I need to do, but they're all getting done. And it's kind of an interesting thing is I, I wish I had this level of, you know, ability to stay focused when I was a pro cyclist because yeah. I probably would have got a lot yeah. more done and I would probably yeah. would have had a lot more motivation. And, and that's the whole thing and I hope that it, that it has changed. If you become a professional now, that people would teach you this, that it's not only laying on the bed, giving people commanders, you have to do this for me, you have to do that for me, I'm not going to your meeting, I'm not going to your birthday, I can't see my grandmother because that doesn't fit my schedule. It always fits your schedule. Thomas, if you take, change. yeah, it's I, I, I hope I, for that. The reason I think it's never going to change is the people that actually see it the real way don't want to go back into pro yeah, cycling. Exactly. Yeah. and that's the problem is that yeah. they keep hiring. You know what I was saying? Like yeah. I would, ne I would never want to be a, uh, I never want to be a director. Fuck no. But <laughs> if no, but if I could do like sixty days a year with a team in some important races and I'm be the second or the third director or you don't give me a name, I don't care. But you just go to the room in the night, in the morning, guys, what do you need? Not Nothing from the bike, what, what do you need from me? Yeah. What conversation do you want to have? Like, 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 like I can put things for you master. in perspective. No, I really like, like, and it doesn't matter what team it, it, it is, but like, I think that could be so beneficial for uh, a certain amount of riders, Pogacar, we probably don't need to tell anything uh, in, in a way. But even he, uh, even with him, you can have a conversation that would put his head a little off of what he's doing and the pressure that he's feeling. And you can do that on every level. Yeah. I, I and, mean, and the main message is don't forget to be human. Yeah. 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 The human but, aspect. Yeah. But you know, you know when we look at like a, a muscle, yeah. right? 
a strong muscle is not a muscle that's switched on. A strong muscle is actually one that's at rest, that's waiting to switch on. It's waiting to engage. And this is the same thing about psychology in sport. You don't want an athlete to be thinking about their sport all the time. You want them to be the relaxed muscle that when they're in the game and they need to think about it, they can switch it on and they save the energy. And yeah. this is exactly Tell that. That's like, the guys who are at the tight end. And, and I mean, but this is also the problem. But the reason why I, I do wake up in the morning and I honestly feel every single day I'm an optimist for almost everything. But there's one thing that I'm slightly pessimistic about is because I've had the same thinking, how cool would it be just to be at a race or at a training camp, literally to be a mood master or somebody that says, guys, tonight we're going to play games. We're going to play card games tonight. Yeah. Tonight we're going to play charades. Tonight we're actually all going to go out for a couple of drinks. And you know what? We're really going to behave. And we're not going to be shit-faced. We're not going to be shit-faced, but we're going to take some pressure off and the single guys can chase girls. The other guys who aren't single are going to live vicariously through you and, to, and listen to your stories the next day. It's like, you know... It's, Yesterday it's, you told something about Thomas in the in the Gruppetto or in the, in the I Peloton. I think I've forgotten the story already. Yeah, oh, you oh, oh. <laughs> It was like uh, you wanted you want to have a Thomas in your in your in the in the in the your part of the Peloton or in the Gruppetto because then. Yeah, I, I remember in 2014 when Thomas wasn't being resigned. Um, I was I was properly butt hurt, right? Like I actually lost yeah. a lot of friends out of the team that year, like Steel von Hoff as well, and I was pretty upset. But for me, Steel needed to find his path um, or try to again through other teams. But the thing that just didn't make sense to me was if I was a team owner, I would have hired Thomas for an unlimited amount of years contract, cap the salary, right? Be like, dude, yeah. you're never going to earn more than this, all right? This is your salary. As long as you want to be here, you still got to train well enough so you can actually be at the dinner table every night. But the most important thing is at the end of every night, you have someone that's the master of the mood that is unconditionally full, unconditionally colorful, so that after a bad day, the dinner situation is not morbid. And I can tell you, I have sat down to some dinners where it feels like I've been... Somebody happy, died. I've been to better funerals than some dinners, you know? And yeah. And then on the inverse as well, when things go really well, Thomas would also keep things real, right? You know, keep things realistic to say like, guys, yeah, yeah, you know, we did that. We did achieve that. But tomorrow is another day and it's about averages, right? It's yeah. not about this big moment. So it's like the mood master doesn't just try to make everything up. He tries to actually keep it in this happy zone that's realistic and achievable. And... Uh, Because I, in the beginning of my career, I did completely opposite. And I saw a movie uh, this week about a guy telling you when it goes really well and you're going to the top. It was Robert De Niro. Yeah, and it's so easy to fall down. Just stay in the middle if you're on top of the world. I've seen them come and go, come yeah, and go. Come, come and go. go. And that's exactly what happened to me. You know, I learned because I made those mistakes And I went out and I bought that watch uh, because I get the bonus and stuff and this and that. And it didn't bring me anything. You know, it's extremely confusing to have a lot of success. It's extremely confusing for the brain. Well, it's a lot of energy, right? It's a lot of energy and it's not realistic energy. It's like, um, how would you say it? It's success doping. And success doping you can't maintain. 
because you can't have success every day of your life or you have to live on a mountaintop and being completely spiritual and be happy about the oxygen that you breathe in every day and make that your, your success. But in a way, just to be calm and stay a little bit in the middle and don't, don't have that uh, ex extreme ups, keep it a little lower, it's much more sustainable for yourself but also for your surroundings. Yeah. Guys, talking about extreme ups, tomorrow's race day. Well, shit. <laughs> oh, we're here for a bike race. Uh, well, I, I thought I'd move <laughs> 12 podcasts and that's yeah. it. Yeah, no, we're trying to alphabetize <laughs> our, our chakras. No, it's about the bike race. What, what, are you, what, are you, what, are you, what are you looking for in, in, in tomorrow's race? A clean run. What's that? Uh, so I came from mountain biking, right? So I, I know the... I know the shtick the when it comes down to the things that can go wrong. Yeah. And, you know, in a road race, things can go wrong, but a lot gets fixed for you or a teammate can come back and, and help you out. Or, you know, if your bike breaks, there's literally another bike waiting for you. Um, so you always feel as if in a road race, you get a, a pretty clear run. Whereas with mountain biking, uh, You know, sometimes things would go wrong, you know, literally from the first kilometer. And once, once you're out of the position that you need, you're done. Um, gravel's a little bit different in that because there's long, it's not all single track, it gets blocked up. So, you know, if you are good, you can fix things. However, um, what every athlete is looking for and every person here, and I, I call everyone that's here an athlete, right? Everyone here has an athletic mindset about the race. They want to do their best. All 4,000 people. Yeah, and, and part of doing their best is you just don't want too much going wrong. It's okay to have a few things go wrong because that's also part of the game and the skill. But you just don't want anything to really just like fuck up your day. So what I want from tomorrow is to have a clear run, really just to see where I am against these guys. Because, you know, I've been racing in Europe. I've done the World Cup in Australia. Um, and, you know, I'm confident in my ability especially technically like you know coming from mountain biking i'm kind of fizzing at the fact that tomorrow's going to maybe be wet and disgusting like that's my territory Cup of tea. everyone else is going to be freaking out hitting brakes and i'm just going to be straight lining taking one <laughs> foot out and drifting that corner out right like that's my shit but um can you look a little bit i'll look back for okay, you okay thank you yeah i'll be like thomas just well, stay in the help a brother out um But yeah, I, I really just want to see where I am. Like I'm, I, I don't want to hide the fact that I'm here to try to win. Um, but it's the one thing that we're kind of coming up as a conversation point now in gravel is like, what's this win at all cost bullshit? And, you know, guys literally turned up here. Some of your Dutch compatriots have turned up on 3D printed custom TT bars and they've been in a wind tunnel. And you know what? It looks stupid. It looks really stupid in my opinion. And... Um, You know, am I going to use small clip-on bars tomorrow? Maybe. Mine's not, mine's not made up yet, but it's like there, there's something about um, this, like, I'm here to win, and it's, I'm wearing a skin suit. It's like, hey, what are you doing, man? Like, you can win as a real bike rider anyway, and you don't have to look like that, and you don't have to spend more money than other people have, right? Like... I honestly Because don't have enough money right now to go to a wind tunnel and buy like a crazy 3D printed thing and I don't want to do that. Because what, what happens what happens if everybody uh, looks at it that, that way? 
Well, you know, we can look at only. it. We what can, happens now? We can look at it from a top down and bottom up. The first one is the top down is to say that this becomes a space race. And one of the reasons why we all enjoy this sport compared to road is the fact that it's not all about these like one percenters. It's not about making sure that you're making a slightly smarter decision or that you've been able to have a sponsor that has bigger investment. Like a small bike company cannot compete with these big bike companies on how they invest in making aerodynamic stuff. But the small bike companies also deserve to have a place in this scene. It shouldn't be the four big brands dominating. And that's like Formula One. No, it's not. And, and it's like, you know, Team Haas. <laughs> you know, it's a terrible nice. Formula One team. Great nice. name. Terrible nice. Formula One team. Just don't have the money. And it's like, for, for me, like... <laughs> team Haas. Team TTs in, uh, in the road. Like, I'm an advocate for the argument that we should all have road bikes because, like... A smaller team can't get the bike they need to win. And it's like, it's, they've already lost the race because they're not as good as Gunner. And then Gunner's also got a bike that's way faster and a car that's pushing him forward with 20 bikes on the roof. It's just yeah. like, to me, that's ugly. It doesn't represent sportsmanship. And Gravel's definitely counterculture to that. So, you know, if we let that sneak in from the top down, where does the domino fall? Does it go to another domino? And, and how this far wheel? does that this go? This wheel? But, th but this is what we're talking about, right? Yeah. Like, how far does it go? Yeah. Because there is a point where if someone has so many technological aids, I can't just turn up in a cool jersey and a really nice bike and win anymore because it's just unobtainable. Like yeah. the talent difference doesn't matter anymore. Mm. It becomes like a huge, huge point to say like, you can't beat a dude on a TT bike on a road bike. Um, the second point though, bottom up, and this is the one that I actually think is far more important is TT bars are dangerous in a bunch. Yeah. Like if you're if you're riding on a long Kansas road alone and you want to take the risk on holding a TT bar, hitting bumps, like go for it. Like that's that's on you if you fall off. But the reality is there's four to five thousand people here that have four all spent, four that have all spent a lot of money yeah. to be here from their own pocket. They're not sponsored. They want to hit, they want to come here and like I said, the athletic mindset is to have their best day they can on the bike. And if some dude or woman crashes four wheels in front of them in the peloton because they are stupid enough to be on a TT bar in a peloton and it wipes out their day, breaks their bike, injures them. Like, who's setting, who's setting the standard here? Is it the race? Yeah, maybe the race should also think to ban this stuff, right? It's and, easy. And most, most races have. It's probably the most easy thing to but, do. But like we've always said in pro cycling, like, you know, if the races don't think about us, the athletes need to. Because we need to start thinking about the overall good of the sport and each other. And we can all just say, hey, 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 yeah. no TT bars. That's stupid. And yeah. um, It's way stronger, the self-regulating element of, yeah, this, uh, of but, gravel. But at the same time, there is, uh, there is that argument to say that you know, we, are setting the, we are setting the standard. Like if every pro goes out and says, Be an together, example. we are not going to do this. Why? Well, it's faster, but that's not the point. We're doing it because we don't want, you know, Stephen in 3,000th position to break his leg because of someone on a TT yeah. bar. This is not personal. Yeah, not, you know I'm Stephen, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 2,000, okay, but 3,000, dude. Dude, I know. Last question. How is your bike affecting your morale? Because, dude. <laughs> it looks cool. <laughs> Holy shit. It looks yeah. pretty damn cool. It's not a specialized, but damn, baby. That's but it's cool pretty model. special though, oh, right? Yeah. It's yeah. still pretty special. Yeah. Yeah, I was I was really fortunate to um connect with Colnago and and Castelli for this year for that matter because we've 
we've looked at this year as as a really fun project because you know these big companies they're they're making lines of bikes making lines of kits uh you know when it comes to team kit as well they're really restricted in their design ability because of how many yeah. sponsors need to be in different places yeah. and colors from companies so we saw this as a really fun experience to get creative and you know everyone has a part of them that's in cycling that has an aesthetic that they like and to have to limit that aesthetic because of you know sponsor needs or trying to stay like a little bit more neutral with color palettes or being a bit less risky you know if, if you paint 50,000 bikes the wrong color it's going to be hard to sell 50,000 bikes but when it comes to one bike we can do whatever the hell we want and so we're doing five bikes that's just, just what you did yeah yeah and to be honest we really went all in on this this one for it looks cool. unbound we the colors are inspired by the Kansas state flag. Um, they're pretty risky colors to put together, but the, um, the graphic designers at Colnago, I think, did something really special. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's influenced by that late 80s, early 90s. Master sort of, Olympic. Yeah, Master Olympic look um, from Colnago. So whilst Colnago is a heritage brand, heritage doesn't mean stuck in their ways or old school. Heritage actually means we have a calendar of history that we can go through and be inspired by and stuff. And be proud of. And be, be proud of it, exactly. Yeah. And retell a story that hasn't been told for a long time yeah. and, and bring it back to life. Ernesto could kiss you right now, my friend. I would kiss Ernesto. Yeah. I'm still waiting to meet the guy. I'm a big fan. Yeah. I want to hug him. I want to hug him. Yeah, I want to hug man. him. That must be um, a great grandfather. <laughs> time to wrap up, guys. Um, please. Take a look at liveslowridefast.com and sign up for the newsletter. If you're in the market for a new kit, you find the link to the shop here too. In case you have any remarks or questions, anything, drop us a line at podcast at liveslowridefast.com. Thanks, Nathan. Thank you, guys. For being in the podcast and your open, openness. Honest story. Honest, open, open story. You're a guy that thinks beyond the bike eh? yeah that's absolutely. what you already told me but uh, but I like to think I know some things but to steal a phrase from Holland <laughs> hey my name is Haas <laughs> I know nothing <laughs> <laughs> thanks Nathan thanks Thomas thanks Shimano GRX and Specialized for sponsoring this podcast this is it done and dusted you ready Thomas yeah see you next time don't know where don't know when but until then live slow ride fast <laughs>